our Lord, as we come to begin this time of study together, we would bow before the King, before the one who is the maker of heaven and earth and the author of the word that we are studying. Father, we pray that our understanding will be encouraged, that you will give to us insight and that you will direct us in the application of the word as we learn it day by day, that we'll be faithful in our response to you. And Lord, as we look at the lives of Moses and Aaron and the faithfulness with which they served you, I pray that this will be an inspiration to us because certainly none of us probably at this point or any point has faced the hostility and the opposition that they faced and yet they served you faithfully. Lord, we know that uh, as we move through these last years of this century, we are moving into a time of increased hostility uh, in our society against the faith that we proclaim. And so I pray that we will be strong in the Lord and that we will become as Moses and Aaron were in our faith and commitment and our obedience. Thank you, Lord, for the ministry of the word that is occurring throughout this building at this hour. We ask that in every class you will anoint your word and empower it to the hearts of every one of your people. In Christ's name, amen. Exodus chapter 8, reading at verse 20. Now the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of insects on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of insects and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of insects will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. And I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this, shi uh, this sign shall occur. Then the Lord did so, and there came great, great swarms of insects into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants, and the land was laid waste because the swarms of insects in all the land of Egypt. Last week, as we began looking at this particular section, one of the things I noted at the end of class last time was the fact that God had preserved Moses and, of course, Aaron in the midst of this situation where, under any normal circumstance, they, they should have not survived. Uh, obviously, if, if Pharaoh is the all-powerful ruler of Egypt, which he was, and considered himself divine, which he did and so did his people, why did he tolerate this man constantly coming back, waving his finger under his nose and, and declaring that he had to let the people of Israel go, and if he didn't, bringing disaster, wreaking havoc on the land? Why, why didn't Pharaoh order him executed, or at least imprison him? Well, obviously... Satan was behind trying to get Pharaoh to resist, and certainly Satan would have put it into his mind to destroy Moses because Satan is known as the destroyer in Scripture. So why did not Pharaoh 
carry out that action. Why could he not? Well, it's obvious that the power of God was upon Moses. And it must have been because as you read through these passages of Scripture, you don't ever see Pharaoh imply or say or act as if he was so angry he's just about ready to have Moses executed. It's almost as if Pharaoh could do nothing about Moses coming and going. It could be that he saw in Moses as he confronted him a power that he knew he could not deal with, that he felt overmatched, that he felt Moses could not be touched. If that's true, if as he w was going through these encounters with Moses, he sensed that in Moses there was a power he couldn't touch, why did he keep up the struggle? Why did he continue on with this? Why did he move ahead with, with, certainly he would have had a foreboding that this is going to be disastrous and it's going to get worse before it gets better. So why did he keep pushing? Why didn't he just say, okay, fine, I'm going to let the people go. You just get out of here. You're bugging me. You know, <laughs> literally as we read this particular passage. <laughs> the question is, why does Satan continue the fight? I mean, Satan is an intelligent being. Why does Satan not just realize, I mean, God so overmatches him, what, is it, what are his chances? Why does he keep pushing on? Well, I, I'm not going to tell you that I know all the answers, but I, certainly one of the answers is, this is the fruit of an ego that is so great that it will not accept the inevitable. It will not accept the obvious. It pushes ahead because of its total inward look and, and, and its desire to, to reach out and incorporate all into its person, referring to Satan and carried over into Pharaoh, that it pushes ahead, this, this Pharaoh will push ahead, Satan pushes ahead, even though his doom is sure, as Martin Luther wrote, in a mighty fortress is our God. It's the insanity of egotism run amok. In the 20th verse of this passage we read, Moses is again told to confront Pharaoh. Moses confronts Pharaoh many times during these encounters, as we know. And he is again to demand the release of Israel. And he's told by God to tell Pharaoh that if Pharaoh refuses, that Moses is to warn him that a great plague of insects was going to invade the land. I, I don't know about you, but I enjoy biology as a subject. But when it comes to the insect part of biology, my interest wanes. There's something about insects that's kind of repulsive, at least to me. And when you think about the fact that there are more insects in the world than anything else, um, more varieties of insect than there is of all the rest of things combined, and I'm told that the total weight of the insects in the world vastly outweighs the total weight of the human race, and probably all the other mammals combined, there's just something rather repulsive uh, about this whole thing. And so when Moses comes and says to Pharaoh, your land's going to crawl with bugs, I, I would think that Pharaoh <laughs> would think twice about uh, how he resisted. The Hebrew word here, which is translated as insects, is, means swarms of flying insects. So we're talking about insects that are coming in on the wing, which means that they will fill the air 
They will darken the sky. They will cover the ground. They will be absolutely everywhere. We have to remember, they didn't have sealed buildings like we have today. You can go in a building through double doors, you know, and inside the air is recycled and nothing's brought in from the outside. In those days, everything was open. There's no way to seal off from insects penetrating virtually every space. It's very probable that these insects were like or maybe the same as the many varieties of flying insects which inhabit Egypt today. We know, I think, from our own experience here, how many insects live in Redding and how many insects live in the United States. You go to tropical countries and you just have to multiply those figures because insects just proliferate in variety and in quantity as you get into more tropical regions. And I think one of the most uh, difficult things about living in the tropics is the numerous varieties of bugs that live there. And even though Egypt is a relatively dry area in the tropical region, uh, along the Nile River there's plenty of moisture and the bugs are numerous. In Psalm 78 we read a, a verse that says, he sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them, Psalm 78, 45. Swarms of flies which devoured them, which seems to indicate, now obviously the word devoured can be used in, in, a, in a sense of, uh, a poetic sense, but I think it does imply that these were not innocuous insects totally. I think these insects, many of them were biting, blood-sucking insects. They were plant-eating insects. They were animal-biting insects. Uh, they were just a total nuisance as they came in across the land. And the scripture implies that they were so numerous that they literally covered everything. Everywhere you went, they were just everywhere. Pick up your garment to put it on, it was crawling with bugs, you know. Pick up your food to eat and they're all over everything. Flying through the windows. Every time you take a breath, you have to kind of fight them off. It was a mess. And I think that helps us to understand how, the extent, the impact was of this. Now, there was no way that this could happen just overnight by natural causes. It was obviously a miracle of God that these creatures should be so numerous as to literally fill every crack and cranny of the land. So serious is this plague that it threatens to convert Egypt into a wasteland. Now we can think of areas in the world that have been heavily devastated by grasshopper infestations, which just chew up everything that's edible and everything that's green. But this is even worse than that, because not only is that happening, but the people also are being attacked as well as the animals. In verse 22, God adds a new factor in this particular plague. He says that Goshen was to be exempt from the plague. Goshen was to be exempt from the plague. The, port, the part of Egypt where the Israel, Israelis had their home. This is where they were given, the land they were given originally, remember, when jo Jacob moved the family into Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, he could put them in the part of the land he wanted them in, and, and he chose Goshen because it was closer to Israel, closer to Canaan. It was flat land in the delta. It was good grazing land. Water was there. 
and uh, they apparently have remained there, at least as far as where they lived. Certainly work gangs were taken out of there to work in the various cities and fortifications, but nevertheless that was their home. And God is now exempting Goshen from this plague. Now as you read through the earlier plagues, no such exemption is mentioned. So we might ask the question, why is God now choosing to exempt his people, to shield his people from the judgment that is falling upon Egypt. Why didn't God begin by shielding them? When the river water turned bloody, why did it not remain fresh in Goshen? There's no implication that it did. Uh, why were they not exempt from the frogs and the gnats? There's no statement of scripture that implies that they were exempt from those things. It seems that the exemption is now brought upon them also. You know, as well as, of course, Moses and Aaron. Why? Well, I've given uh, two possible answers, which are there on your outline. I think the first was to see that Yahweh truly was all-powerful. That God was the universal switch-thrower, if you will. It was God who could turn the light on and turn the light off, so to speak and no one and no thing else. It's to imply, the implication is God means business here and that Moses is God's man. Now remember what happened in the beginning. The people of Israel supported Moses and he went before Pharaoh to make the demand and then Pharaoh required them to make more bricks than before, only didn't supply them with a straw to make the bricks strong. They had to go out and get it and, and make the bricks and make the same number of bricks and if they didn't meet the quota, the foremen were beaten. And they accused Moses of being responsible for making life more difficult for them. So their faith in Moses and their faith in Yahweh had waned. So God is now restoring that faith only on a far deeper level. It's not just the word of God coming through Moses and the people being convinced because they wanted it to be that way. It's they're being convinced because it's obvious that they're dealing with an almighty God who can destroy the Egyptians and exempt them. And so, secondly, they were to understand the contrast, what it meant to be exempt. How, how, what would any of us know, for example, if, if we were told that from now on, or no, let's go back. Let's say that from the first time we worked, got a job, somebody came along and says, by the way, you're exempt from taxes. You don't have to pay any taxes. Now, you really wouldn't know how wonderful that was until you'd paid taxes for 20 or 30 years to realize that that's a real blessing to be exempt from taxes. So for them to experience the plague, to know the difficulty the Egyptians were going through, and then to be exempt, they understood the blessing that that was to them. And I think that's why God allows some of the problems he allows into our lives. You and I can sympathize and, and, and encourage and help others who go through difficulties if we have gone through similar or the same difficulties. And scripture, you know, makes that point in many places, and we've talked about that before. They now are coming to know that not only can God deliver them, he will deliver them, and since, since he does deliver them, he is obviously their God. So now their commitment is far deeper than just listening and believing the word of Moses. 
It's through experience also. In verse 23, Moses said to Pharaoh, the plague will begin tomorrow. And I think that spoiled Pharaoh's entire day <laughs> from that moment on. Verse 25, And Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It is not right to do so. For we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not even stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only do not go very far away. Make supplication for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of insects may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of insects from Pharaoh, that his servants, and from his servants and from his people, not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. In the previous verse we had read that the swarm of insects had laid the land waste. Uh, the Hebrew word here can also be translated ruined that the insects ruined the land. How, how did they do that? Well, partly, probably, because there were certainly grasshoppers and, and plant-eating insects involved. But I think beyond that, there was also the human impact. If, if you were constantly battling insects, every time you breathed and every time you walked and every time you put anything on or tried to go to bed or tried to eat, there were insects everywhere, that could get a little depressing, you know, after a while. No relief. Try to go to sleep and they're crawling all over you, you know. It's kind of, well, it, it really bugged them. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> so I think part of the problem was that they were so depressed and so oppressed by this that they simply didn't go to work. What for? And as a result, the land was being allowed to go to pot, so to speak. So between the destroying insects and the fact that the humans were not applying their energy to do anything about the land, it was being ruined. So Pharaoh, in desperation, seeing what's happened, and of course being bothered himself by insects everywhere, the great almighty Pharaoh, son of God, covered with insects, he, calls, he called Moses and Aaron, and he tried to strike a bargain. This is really interesting, I think. He'll let them go make a sacrifice, but they have to make the sacrifice in Egypt. Okay, okay, you can go make your sacrifice. I've made the big decision. I'm going to relent and let you make your sacrifice, but don't leave, don't leave Egypt. See, they had requested to go three days' journey into the wilderness. And Pharaoh doesn't want to give in entirely. Pharaoh's request shouldn't seem strange to us at all. 
when you think about it. How often have we attempted to strike up a bargain with God? Has that ever been a temptation for any of us? To bargain with God, maybe just in our minds, just a few thoughts, as God's servants, what our goal should be each day is to know the will of God and to obediently carry it out without compromise. But human nature says, I would like this, I want to do that. Uh, God, let's have a deal here. If you will do this for me, I will do this for you. And of course, we think right back to Jacob, don't we? When he was headed out towards, when he was fleeing from his uh, brother and he was up at Bethel and, and he told God, if you will bless me and bring me safely back, I'll give you a tenth of all that I get. I don't think God was thrilled to death by the bargain. But it's a natural thing for us to try to bargain with God. But it's important for us to know God doesn't strike deals. God doesn't need to strike a deal. God doesn't need you and he doesn't need me. He chooses to have you and he chooses to have me. It's not out of a need. It's out of a choice of sovereign God. And therefore, he doesn't need to strike up any bargains. Oh, I'm going to be so delighted to get this person uh, on my side. I'll, I'll do whatever, whatever it takes. Well, God often will do whatever it takes, but that's usually not part of a bargain. <laughs> and it's usually pretty difficult for that individual as God works in the life to bring them to himself. What God wants is absolute yieldedness to him so that we lose, not in the Buddhist or Hindu sense, but, but that we give ourselves to him. We become, as Paul says, a bond servant, a, loving, a person who lovingly commits himself or herself to serve another person, in this case, God. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to trust that he will do what is absolutely best in our lives, that whatever is near and dear to us in terms of people or things, God is able to take care of far better than we can. So why shouldn't we trust him? Why should we try to strike a bargain? God, if you'll take this cancer from my body, I will do this for you. God, if you'll give me a million dollars, I will do this for you. God, if you'll help me to find this or, or to have this particular person that I want, I will do this for you. God doesn't need any of that. And that's not what he wants from us at all. I'd like to turn to the second chapter of Philippians for a moment, if we may. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Therefore, what? Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. God is working his good pleasure in us. 
And our faith needs to be that his good pleasure is our good, period. That there is no higher good than his good pleasure for us. And, and that thing we want, that position we want, that person we want, or whatever it might be that we want, if it's not what God wants, then we must yield in that issue knowing that what he will give us is better than what we want. Because we don't see the future. We don't even see the fullness of the, of the, the reason for our want, our desire. To be yielded to him. To allow him to make the choices. To surrender in every situation. To his perfect plan and his perfect will. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's probably one of the most difficult commands in all scripture to fulfill. Because although we may do something, what we're told to do that we don't want to do, and we might not say anything to anybody, but inside there's a volcano. And it's erupting quietly. <laughs> Maybe inside, mm, I'm doing it, but I sure don't want to do it. We may be able to smile and say, yeah, of course, I'll do it. I'd love to do it. And we're lying through our teeth. The, the point is coming to the place where in our hearts we do things without grumbling or disputing because we are surrendered to him. And we recognize he's brought this into our lives for whatever his purpose might be. I think we have, some time, we, we have a tendency sometimes to create a bifurcation in life. And, and we think that you know, God is at work in us, but sometimes people do things and conditions happen to us that God didn't bring. Uh -uh. <laughs> God is overall, and he knows every situation. And he knows that person may do something to you that is evil. But that doesn't mean God had no control over it or that God didn't allow it. And therefore, we have a right to react to it in a way that's contrary to Scripture. It's hard. It's very hard. It's not our nature. I don't know if you find the situation as I do, but fighting human nature is, is a lifelong battle. We don't get over it. Uh, hopefully, as we walk th through obedience, uh, we become more natural in our obedience to the Lord and in our instant submission to Him. But there are still those moments and those times when the inner self rises up and says, I don't want to do this. There's something wrong here. It would have been easier for Moses and Aaron to work out this compromise with Pharaoh. They say, oh, he's going to let us go. We, we have to stay in the land, but, but he's going to let us go. So that's okay. Maybe that'll get rid of all these confrontations. All we have to do is go to God and convince him that that's okay. Moses and Aaron weren't about to do that. See, they had come to know God to the extent that they knew they weren't going to work out a deal with God. God had made it clear what they were to do. For them then to go before God and say, Lord, I know what you said, but Pharaoh has agreed that we can worship you, we can sacrifice to you, we just have to stay in the land. Is that going to be okay? They knew better. Of course, Moses knew a lot better because Moses knew what the real ultimate goal was. And that was to get Israel completely out of the land of Egypt altogether. And sacrificing in some corner of Egypt was not about to do that. Because all Pharaoh would have said, all right, you guys, make your sacrifice in Goshen. And they would have gone anywhere. So Moses and Aaron reject the offer. 
And you'll notice that in this passage, Moses objects on the basis of two grounds. First of all, he says, to carry out a sacrifice of sheep and goats in this land to a God that the Egyptians do not recognize and a form of sacrifice that is an, abom an abomination to them and to do it in their midst is to invite disaster. They will stone us. Now he's trying to reason with Pharaoh on this particular point. The more important point was the, the point that was in Moses' heart and that he tried to express to Pharaoh was that it would be simply an act of disobedience to God. And that is the thing that Moses and Aaron would not do, disobey God. Well, Pharaoh is, has met his match here. And so rather than trying to argue Moses down, Pharaoh verbally relents and says, okay, okay, go into the wilderness, but don't go very far. <laughs> he's got to keep it inserting something to indicate he still has some control here. One of the things you'll always discover is with a, with a person who has a giant ego, that even when they're faced with, I mean, they're into the wall, they'll try to find some way to save faith, face. Something to indicate they still have a measure of control. And that's what Pharaoh is doing here. After giving his permission, he makes a surprising request. He says, make supplication for me. Now, he may just be saying there, all right, now if you'll ask God to get rid of these bugs. But he also may be saying here, pray to your God for me. And we might say, is Pharaoh beginning to see a little bit of the light here? Is, is he beginning to, to recognize that his resistance is to no avail and therefore he better start seeing if he could get on the right side of God? Or is this simply an effort to convince Moses of his sincerity? Well, certainly it's more the latter than the former because nothing that we see in this passage or any of those that follow indicate that he was relenting at all or that his resistance was weakening and he was beginning to see the light. This man resists until the ultimate end. And even when his own son, heir apparent to the throne, dies, along with all the other oldest sons of the Egyptians in the land, and he lets the people go, he then changes his mind and goes after them. And can you think of anybody that you know or anybody in recorded history who was as dead set on doing his will and resisting the mind of God to the point of disaster than that? I can't think of anyone. Well, Moses agreed to pray for an end to the plague. But he warned Pharaoh, he said, as I'm going out now, I'm going to go and pray that God will shut this plague off tomorrow. But I warn you, you had better honor your word this time. But God had already told Moses that Pharaoh is not going to honor his word. Pharaoh is going to keep hardening his heart. So it should not have been of any surprise to Moses when the scripture tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to release Israel again. It's sort of like the many battlefield conversions that you've heard of. People who are in a moment of disaster 
and, and then they convert to God, and then as soon as the disaster is over with and they've survived and the pressure is off, they forget all about any commitment they made. Was there a true conversion? Well, God only knows, but it sure doesn't look like it. So Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. Now, you and I, I trust, are, are certainly not pagans, as Pharaoh was. And yet, it's possible for us to harden our heart to some extent against God. Particularly when we get into a situation where things are going well. The church has, throughout history, never been destroyed by persecution. Persecution of the church has never destroyed it. It has only strengthened it. But the church has grown very weak and feeble and to the point of, of being meaningless in society where everything has gone well for the church over a long period of time. Now, for you and for me as individuals, we may not like that particular analysis <laughs> because we prefer things when they're going nice and smoothly and success seems to be coming and there's no opposition and everybody speaks well of us. But the scripture, what does it say about everyone speaking well of us? Beware. <laughs> Beware. Because Satan is certainly behind that. Sometimes God has to allow problems into our lives just so that we will remember him, turn to him, and be faithful to him. I don't think any of us likes hard times in our lives, but they're necessary. They're absolutely necessary. We're warned in the scripture in many places by God, as Israel was warned, about the danger of turning from dependence upon him in times of prosperity. One of those examples is given in the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy. This is a very, very fascinating passage. Because God is the God of the practical. God is the God of reality. God is not a pie-in-the-sky God. He says in Deuteronomy 8, beginning at verse 11, Be Beware lest you forget the Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statues, statutes, which I am commanding you today, lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you with he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. I mean, that little phrase can apply to all of us. The hard things come. Why? that he might humble us, that he might test us to do good for us in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and my strength, the strength of my hand has made me this wealth. And, and this, this is so vividly illustrated, I think I've mentioned this before, as you read in the book of Daniel, as Nebuchadnezzar stood on the roof of his palace and looked out over, this, over the city of Babylon, he said in his heart and apparently also out loud, Is this not great Babylon which 
I have built. Now, God isn't normally affronted by our silly statements, but that day God used Nebuchadnezzar as an example. And that man spent the next seven years eating grass, crawling around naked in front of the palace. Talk about being humiliated until he understood, no, this is not great Babylon which you have built. God raises those up who will be in power and God tears down those whom he chooses. God rules. And Nebuchadnezzar will be so convinced of that, he will write a letter to the governors of all his provinces saying, you will worship the God, Lord God of heaven because he is the one who sets up rulers and tears down rulers. He learned his lesson. Unfortunately, not too many leaders of state have. But you shall, verse 18, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve him, them and worship them, I testify against you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. And what was the thing that brought all this upon them? Was it the attack of the evil one? Was it, uh, was it enemies? Was it bugs in the land? No, it was prosperity. Their gold and silver was multiplying. Their crops were multiplying. Their animals were multiplying. They lived in fine houses. And God said, that's the moment you must pay attention. More maybe than ever before. Because that's the moment you may turn your heart against God. That's when you may say, I have done this by my own might and I owe no one thanks but myself. We have to be careful as Christians that we don't, do not allow even the slightest hardness of heart to come in. What God wants in us is soft hearts towards Him and towards others. And absolute submission to His will in prosperity or in want. As Paul said, I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. He's had all those things and yet Paul was faithful. And that's what God wants of all of us. Chapter 9 of Exodus, we begin to, in this passage, look at the fifth, sixth, and seventh plagues that God would bring upon Egypt. I'd like to read the first seven verses of chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence upon your livestock, which are in the field, and on the horses, and on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. And the Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the morrow, and all the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the sons of Israel not one died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of the Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. I've met a lot of stubborn people in my life, but obviously Pharaoh takes the cake. It seems incredible. God says to Moses, time to go back to Pharaoh again. 
confront Pharaoh. I mean, we may just be talking about hours after Moses prayed and all the insects disappeared. It may have been only hours later that God said, all right, go back to Pharaoh, or, or it may have been a few days, but whatever it was, we're not talking about a long time frame here. And he was to demand of Pharaoh, and, and you'll notice, when, when God makes a, a command, or when God makes a demand, he doesn't do it an, an anonymously. He says, go and tell him in the name of Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, let my people go. And he was to warn Pharaoh. And you notice as we read this passage in uh, verse 3, behold the hand of the Lord. Previously, in an earlier plague, the, the servants of Pharaoh had said, this is the finger of God. Well, the finger of God is now going to be replaced by the hand of God. The intensity of the oppression of the plague is being increased. And what this is going to mean is devastation of the Egyptian economy. The stock market is going to go crash. Livestock market. A great plague is going to fall upon the horses and the donkeys and the camels and the cattle and the sheep and the goats. We're not told what it is. Whatever it is, it's a very quick pestilence. It's not something that just kind of creeps in and knocks off a few here and there, and over a period of a couple of years you lose a lot. It's kind of like, you know, overnight. This pestilence comes in and the animals drop like flies all over the land. This, of course, is going to be a serious blow to the Egyptian economy. Now, for you and for me, if, if there became a big plague on this land and the horses died and the donkeys died and the camels died, and the cows died, and the sheep, and the goats died, that would be a serious problem. But for Egypt, it was disastrous. They didn't have trucks, and buses, and planes. They didn't have tractors. They didn't have all the things we have. So when these animals die, I mean, everything comes screeching to a halt. Their transportation system is shut down. Their agricultural situation is shut down. Food production is shut down. The military is no longer effective because there's no cavalry. I mean, the whole thing is destroyed. I mean, if there were to be a powerful enemy looking in at that time who was waiting for a moment to strike Egypt, that would have been the time. They would have been virtually defenseless. Of course, an enemy would have been foolish to want a land that was going through such disasters. But nevertheless, that would have been the time to strike. But the Lord stipulated two things here. He said, first of all, none of the animals in Israel will be touched. This clearly indicates who God is fighting for and that he has the power to protect his people while destroying the enemy. And none of the Egyptian gods is going to be able to do anything about it. Not one thing. The Egyptian gods can't even kill off a single animal or protect a single Egyptian animal. And secondly, God said, it's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen tomorrow. How many times has Pharaoh heard that? It's going to happen tomorrow. God doesn't let him sit around a long time wondering. God speaks and it happens. Now, as is true in some of the previous plagues, when Moses gave this prophecy, there, there's no record of any response on the part of Pharaoh. And, and this is the scenario which I see Moses walks in before Pharaoh and he raises his staff and he says, this is the word of the Lord. 
And as soon as he delivers it, this man is so fed up with this Pharaoh that he delivers the word and it's still echoing off the wall of the palace when Moses makes a pirouette on his heel and just walks straight out the door and doesn't even wait to hear if Pharaoh has a response. He's tired of Pharaoh's reneging on every promise. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think Moses is displaying really what the Lord uh, would display in a situation like, oh, the Lord is very, very patient, and the war Lord is merciful and kind. But Jesus also drove the money changers out of the temple. And I don't see, I don't think he did it with a big smile saying, I'm sorry, folks, but you know, this is, I think he was raging mad when he did this. And there are times when uh, God uses tough love. I think it's very important for us to note here and we'll have to end on this theme and uh, pick it up next week. But God is not just striking a blow at the Egyptian economy here. He is striking a devastating blow to the Egyptian pantheon of gods. He is sending a thunderbolt through their theogony, their whole story, the evolution of their gods and, and their whole religious system. And, and we'll, we'll look and see how this is specifically. And, and what this does, of course, is it builds upon what's already happened with the Nile River and the gods that that river represents or which are supposed to be the gods of that river. You add that now to the gods of the livestock, some of whom were very, very powerful gods in Egypt, some of the most highly exalted gods. I mean, for Egyptians to have any faith left in their gods, they've got to be told fools totally darkened minds. And as we go through this passage, uh, I mean these passages of Scripture, we do discover that the people are long before Pharaoh convinced to let the Israelites go. And when Pharaoh finally does, they, they can't, they can hardly hold themselves back from helping Israel to leave. You know, we'll pack your van for you. I mean, we'll pay for the truck or whatever, you know. Just go. And whatever it cost them to send Israel was cheap compared to the disasters that were sweeping over the land one upon the other and making Israel, uh, making Egypt a devastated land.